This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to If Then, the show about how technology is changing our lives and our future. I'm April Glazer. And I'm Will Oremus. Hey, everyone. Welcome to If Then. We're coming to you from Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We are recording this on the afternoon of Tuesday, July 24th. On today's show, we'll talk about what's happening now with the proposed $3.9 billion merger between Sinclair, the largest television station owner in the country, and Tribune Media. Sinclair is famous for having a pro-Trump tilt at the local TV stations it owns. Thanks to an unexpected announcement from the FCC last week, that merger may now be doomed. Later, we'll be joined by Claire Wordle, the executive director of First Draft, a nonprofit news literacy and fact-checking outfit with Harvard University. Wordle works hands-on with journalists and newsrooms around the world to find and responsibly debunk disinformation. We'll talk to Wordle about what we should be concerned about as the midterm elections approach here in the U.S. and how false stories spread on social media to confuse readers, disenfranchise voters, or even incite violence. And that can happen even when Russian agents aren't working behind the scenes. And lastly, we'll have Don't Close My Tabs, some of the most interesting stories we saw online this week. All right, April, welcome back. Did you have a good vacation? I did. I went to Topanga Canyon outside of L.A. and saw friends and and folks who I don't get to see very often out in that beautiful part of the world. If you've never been, I recommend trekking up or I guess up if you're coming from L.A. down from uh, Oakland where I am. Uh, But while I was away, you had some great shows, including a very important and fantastic interview with uh, Vijagadi from Twitter. uh, And Maya joined us from Vanity Fair. That was a great show. Um, it was fun to listen to it, and but I missed being on. Uh, how are you doing, Will? <laughs> yeah, I missed having you. You, I, you would have had some great questions for Vidya, I think. Um, but it's good to have you back. And let's jump into this week's news, which is a story on a theme that you've been following for a long time, which is media consolidation. On Monday, we got word that one of the longtime standbys of local New York journalism, the tabloid New York Daily News, had its newsroom cut in half. Uh, That's thanks to a mandate from its new owner, Tronk, which is based in Chicago. That came right on the heels of another media ownership story that you've been following on the country's biggest television owner, Sinclair. Yeah. So uh, if we remember last year, Sinclair shared that it wanted to merge with Tribune Media, which actually uh, used to be part or Tronk used to be part of the Tribune company and spun off in 2014 into its own division. Uh, Tronk, for those who don't know, is a company that uh, that that owns a, a kind of a bucket of newspapers or a handful of newspapers, including the Baltimore Sun the New York Daily News, uh, the Chicago Tribune, a couple in Florida, uh, the Orlando Senate is one of them. Yeah, so they had, to, they had to call it something other than Tribune when they spun <laughs> it off. And I remember when they decided to call it Tronk and everybody was just like, what? I know. It sounds like the sound an air horn makes or something that you don't <laughs> actually mean to say. So, But anyway, this company, um, for having such a funny name, is also not 
that great. Or it seems, at least from my perspective as a journalist, I'm definitely not applauding this recent move. Uh, they cut, as you said, the New York Daily News in half. I have a question on that, though. Do you know why they call it a tabloid? I keep, you know, I'm, I'm reading this story. What makes the New York Daily News a tabloid instead of a newspaper? Because they do a lot of hardcore journalism, and they've won several Pulitzers for their investigative reporting. I think of a tabloid as something that would have a bunch of celebrity gossip. Oh, I think I do know this one actually. Yeah, so this so is this totally is going back aside, to my but I'm going back to my media studies classes yeah. from from college. But but yeah, it's a tabloid because of the size of the paper. Technically, okay. it was it was printed on a tabloid size sheet, and for a long time, newspapers would sort of differentiate their style based on what they were whether they were a broadsheet, which is the you know the big full size papers like the New York Times, or whether they were a tabloid like the New York Daily News and New York Post. And the tabloids, you know, the, the word gets a bad reputation because they're the supermarket tabloids, which are full of fake, what we now call fake news, like the National Enquirer. But the reality is a lot of big city tabloids, including the Daily News, had a reputation for very hard hitting reporting, but they just had a more casual, more colloquial style. They were sort of more like the the newspaper of the masses rather than the one that's pitched at the elites or that's the paper of record. Right. And the New York Daily News uh, often uh, had its cover with these just wonderful cartoons, um, often targeting Trump uh, since he became president or actually even before he became president. But uh, that staff uh, was cut in half uh, as of uh, Monday, an announcement that came from Tronk. Now, the New York Daily News used to employ about 400 journalists in 1988, uh, but after Monday's cuts, uh, the newsroom is now down to just 45. And I think that's just really illustrative of the gutting of local newsrooms. And it really brings to light the fact that the biggest threat to journalism in the U.S. uh, isn't the constant kind of berating from from Trump, but actually, uh, you know, owners of, 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 of newspapers and media companies that are trying to make as much money as possible uh, with the most bare bones staff they can. Um, and, you know, we've just seen so many jobs cut. I feel like it's every month we hear about another local paper um, another group of papers even suffering severe job cuts. Um, but I, I want to talk about uh, kind of something that helps lead to those job cuts. And that's something that, that happened with Sinclair, which is when media companies combine, right, when they merge. And so when we have one company that is able to own a lot of local publications, they often try to cut corners, share resources, fire journalists. And You know, when news came out last year that Sinclair, which is the country's largest television station owner, it has something like 191 stations to its name, uh, wanted to buy Tribune Media, which uh, for about 40 stations, uh, which would increase Sinclair's holdings to about 230 something stations. That meant probably the inevitable loss of jobs, right? It meant that uh, newsrooms would get cut, that resources would be shared, that programming would be shared. It also meant, though, that those stations that would go come under Sinclair's umbrella would probably also have to adhere to, you know, Sinclair's conservative-leaning bias. And the thing is, is that in order for that deal to go through— the FCC had to change a lot of laws to allow for uh, Sinclair to become that big because there are several laws in the United States uh, that kind of prevent one company from owning too many media properties, particularly in a single market, because the fear is that that one company could just become way too influential. You know, the idea is that you change the channel and you think you're getting another viewpoint, but actually it's the same owner 
just a, a different brand, maybe a different anchor. And and in the case of Sinclair, we know that that owner likes to give mandates uh, from the, the national newsroom to all of its local stations about what it should air. And in the case of Sinclair, those uh, must-run segments are generally, uh, as, as far as we know, uh, mostly all pro-Trump. Yeah, there was one famous one where all the anchors at, at Sinclair-owned stations around the country, and again, these are local stations, so when you, you tune in, you think you're watching right. your local people talking from their local perspective, but in fact, there was there was a video made where it showed these anchors of local stations from all around the country parroting the same exact talking points that portrayed the mainstream media as fake news, which of course is the the line that is pervaded by Trump and by and by Fox News and by a lot of conservatives. And so you saw this at Sinclair stations, you know, in, in even in liberal cities. I, I don't I think Seattle may have been one of them. Forgive me if I've got it wrong. But uh, but yeah, so there's this concern that now the lo- even the local news is being dictated from afar by people with an agenda that may have l- nothing to do with the interests of the uh, audience they serve. Right. And so one when I heard that Sinclair was trying to buy more television stations, I, as somebody who cares about a healthy press, um, rejoiced. <laughs> I was mortified. Right? Did not rejoice. <laughs> I did not rejoice. I said, "Oh no, this means fewer journalists. This means less local news. This means potentially more biased news." And the last thing we re- need right now with a president who likes to take to his megaphone on Twitter and call the media fake and biased is actually more biased news, right? <laughs> Which we've seen happen with. With Sinclair, I mean, just to give like one more example in the run up to the election, one of the must run segments had to do with uh, Hillary Clinton not disclosing her medical diagnosis. And the prompt asked, can a president lead with so many questions of transparency and trust? And that was about Hillary Clinton. You know, Um, another must run segment was about her emails that uh, prompted reporters 18 months since the first story broke. And she's still in the mode of damage control when it comes to her emails. And we do know that a day before Trump's inauguration, the CEO and owner of Sinclair met with Ajit Pai to discuss some deregulatory measures that they would like to see happen. And that that uh, actually did end up happening 10 days later. One of those deregulatory measures uh, kind of changed uh, the rules around what uh, stations are allowed to share. So if, uh, if you own multiple stations, there were rules around not sharing like advertising revenue or, or studio space. And again, that was in order to ensure more plurality of ownership to hopefully ensure we have a healthy media ecosystem. Those rules were rescinded soon after Pi took to office. And actually Pi uh, rescinded a whole suite of uh, media consolidation rules that seem to kind of lay out the red carpet for Sinclair's merger. Now, that merger, as we said at the top of the show, as of last week, all of a sudden appears to be potentially off the table or doomed. Yeah, what what happened there? What's the source of that reversal? Yeah, sorry to stuff so much history in before I got to the news. I'm just very, very captivated by this story. Um Perhaps it's a little navel-gazy because I am a journalist. But uh, but last Monday, Pi announced that the merger was going to be sent to an uh, internal judge for review at the FCC. Um, and that was a big surprise because, as I said, there were a number of things that Pi had done uh, over the past year and a half that seemed kind of custom-tailored to allow for this merger to go through. Uh you know, Pi is under investigation even by the inspector general at the FCC for potentially, uh, you know, changing the rules at the commission to benefit this merger. So perhaps some dust got kicked up he felt uncomfortable with. He wanted to toss it out of his hands. I'm not sure exactly why he decided to 
kick it to review. But what he said, at least what we know he said, the reason uh, is because he said the evidence we've received suggests that certain station divestitures that have been proposed to the FCC would allow Sinclair to control those stations in practice, even if not in name, in violation of the law. Now, in order for the merger to go through, the FCC said that uh, Sinclair has to divest from some of its stations to hit below the uh, the ownership cap that they're uh, technically the most amount of stations they're allowed to own. It turns out that it was widely reported that many of those stations that they were divesting from were going to people who, you know, were really, really close with uh, Sinclair, uh, have had shows with them, were planning to simply own the stations but not run them. So in effect, Sinclair would still have, you know, all of these stations. They really weren't giving up as many as they had, you know, purported to be giving up. And Pi seemed uh, to all of a sudden think that was a red flag and uh, bad enough to send it to a judge, which uh, to many observers who have been like watching these types of uh, media mergers over the years know that, that this could just spell doom for the merger. Um, in 2015, you know, similarly... Under President Obama, the FCC used the same maneuver when Comcast and Time Warner were trying to merge. They sent it to a judge at the FCC, and then the, the, the merger ended up not happening. So perhaps this thing that I was so worried about is now off the table. I'm not exactly sure why, but Pi says it's because it was a little too corrupt even for him. So <laughs> that doesn't mean, though, that the deregulatory measures that Pi put into place, of which there were many, um, aren't still on the table. And that doesn't mean that there aren't going to be other major acts of consolidation in the future uh, with this kind of road that was paved for the Sinclair merger um, that, you know, could lead to more newsrooms being gutted. Uh, you know, another rule that was cut was um, kind of this local studio rule. There was a rule that if you had a uh, license uh to broadcast in a community, you had to have a studio in the that community of license. Um, that rule was axed. You know, all of these rules that kind of allow for more consolidation and less localism. And so we will see how it goes. Uh, but just because Sinclair's off the table doesn't mean that, you know, they're not going to try again with maybe a more modest proposal or, you know, some other uh, owner is going to come in and, and try to buy more media properties. And and what usually happens in that case as as we've seen is fired journalists. All right, April, thank you so much for that education. This is this is wonky stuff, but it's extremely important to the functioning of our, our society and the media. We're going to have to leave it there for the moment. But when we come back, we will have our interview with Claire Wardle. She's a research fellow at the John F. Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on creditworthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at applecard.com. 
Our guest today is Claire Wardle. She is an expert on verifying information that circulates on social media, like news. She is the co-founder and leader of First Draft, a nonprofit focused on addressing misinformation and disinformation online. Previously, Dr. Wardle was the research director at the Tau Center for Digital Journalism at Columbia Journalism School. She's worked with newsrooms and humanitarian organizations around the world. She joins us now from the Harvard campus, where she is a research fellow at the John F. Kennedy School of Government. Thank you so much for joining us, Claire. Thanks for having me. So I actually want to start with definitions because you're an academic and we all know academics love definitions. Um, I want to know what you mean by misinformation or what we should mean, rather, by misinformation and disinformation, because the problem has often been reduced down to the term fake news or as Facebook calls it, false news. Um, and I guess I kind of want to know what are the different types of not accurate information out there and, and how do you define the space? So you're right, I do love definitions. And that's partly because this space is really complex. And so that term, F asterisk, asterisk, asterisk news is just used as this like throwaway term. And we're not actually clear what we mean. So misinformation is false information, but the people who share it don't realize that it's false. So that's my mum resharing an image of a shark during a hurricane that she doesn't understand is not real. Disinformation is also false information, but it's actually shared by people who know it's false and they're trying to do harm. And I also talk about a distinction called malinformation, which is actually genuine imagery or content that is used to cause harm. So that could be, for example, leaked emails. They are genuine emails, but they are shared to cause harm. It could be revenge porn. It could be an old image from a previous breaking news event that recirculates. That is a genuine image. So the reason that those definitions are needed, I think, is because this is a complex space and that one term does not reflect that complexity. Right. And so as as journalists, the concept of F asterisk 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 news, <laughs> as you put it, or, or false news or, or not quite correct information is kind of really offensive to us because our whole job is to not write false news. Right. If we do, we'll be fired. And so I and, and Will, we have a bias against false reporting. Right. That's that's what we do. Um, and with that, I'm curious, what would you say the role is of journalists in fighting disinformation? Um, you know, is my job to debunk fake news now or is it to kind of report on all the other tragedies in the world? And how do I deal with the fact that this is obviously something that I'm opposed to? Well, you're absolutely right. And that's why people go, oh, you're stupid not using that term. The reason I refuse to use the term is because it's actually been used against the news industry. It's been weaponized. And it's by being used by particularly politicians around the world to describe any type of information they don't like. And when it's been used and targeted against you know, I'm just going to use the term the mainstream media, which does have professional standards. It does have fact checkers. It does have multiple pairs of eyes looking at things. It does have a corrections policy. Then it's really important that we're distinctive when we know when we use these terms. So actually, when you talk to audiences increasingly about what do you think when I use the term fake news, increasingly the numbers are going up because people go, I'll tell you what's fake news, Claire. It's the mainstream media. So we've got a problem here is that we in the journalism space are using a term that's not being used by the audience. To your question about is it your job to debunk it, it's also a really, really important question because ultimately 20 years ago journalists never really had to deal with the stuff that wasn't true it ended up on the cutting room floor it was the things that people said well you know we deal in truth we're journalists 
But the problem now is that because audiences can get the same information as you as journalists, for example, during a breaking news event, they want help navigating that information ecosystem. They are looking to journalists to say, is that post that's going viral on Twitter, is that true? Is that video on Facebook, is that true? Can you help me navigate that? So what that means is increasingly newsrooms have had to play a role in helping audiences navigate this space. Right. And so, you know, Facebook and YouTube, they've kind of had this flattening effect, right, where any random person that wants conspiracy theorist or, or grassroots journalist even, which I would say is a good in, in many ways, then can they can amass influence uh, as broad as a verified news organization, right? And platforms have certainly played a role in the disinformation crisis that we're in now where people often don't know if what they're seeing is true or not. What do you think the platforms can be doing going forward? So a big part of this is that you know, the iPhone was created in 2007. You know, a lot of these social networks were created in 2004, 2005. Our brains are trying to catch up with a new type of information. So to your point, April, you're right. Every post on Facebook looks identical, whether it's from the New York Times, whether it's from Slate, whether it's from some crazy conspiracy blogger, they look identical in Facebook or YouTube. And so our brains are desperately looking for heuristics, which are these mental shortcuts we need to help us make sense of information. So in an age of gatekeepers, when we used to go to a newsstand and give somebody some money and buy a newspaper, our brain would be like, I'm about to consume some news. Uh Or at 7pm, we'd hear the bongs and it was like, bong, 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 this is the news. And our brain would be like, this is the news. (laughs) Now, news is a mixture of the fact that a friend is hungover, another friend is pregnant, and there's just been a new chemical weapons attack in Syria. And my brain does not know how to make sense of all that information in a feed where everything looks the same. So you're right, we've had a flattening... um, kind of move in all of the in in terms of our information ecosystem but also visually everything looks the same and we haven't made up for that and I hope in 30 years time we'll look back and like do you remember 2018 when everything looked the same because I think we'll look back at this period and say we weren't helping ourselves our brains are struggling but with the amount of information we consume every single day on these tiny smartphone screens we just haven't thought about how can we help our brains right it's hard to know what's the top shelf information and and what's the well right yeah yeah Tell us a little bit about the, the negative effects of misinformation. What is, what's the worst that can happen? So the other reason when, we, when I think about this is there, I would argue there's a mixture between somebody creating a, a hoax. You know, let's go back to that shark example. Somebody photoshops a, a shark into an image from a highway and says, this is from the latest hurricane. Like, that's not great, but I would hope many people now might just say, oh, there's no problem with that. The bigger problem is when we have misinformation or more frequently disinformation where people are deliberately trying to sow confusion and actually use divisions, particularly social and cultural divisions, to pit people against each other or to simply confuse people to such an extent they don't know what to believe. So I think that's a real challenge I see, even when we discuss this, you know, even something like this podcast, I think, am I actually flagging something that makes people say, well, I don't even know who to trust anymore, Claire. And so what we're seeing potentially is people turning inwards to people that they know. And that's what we're seeing in places like India with closed messaging apps like WhatsApp, when people don't trust the mainstream media, and they don't trust Facebook or Twitter or these big Uh, social media platforms, they are retreating into these closed messaging spaces because partly they don't know who to trust and they're worried that if they're online, somebody's going to abuse them or harass them. And so what that means is that as a society, we're kind of becoming smaller, even though we have all this information that we can access. So I think this question of by even discussing it, are we driving down trust? I think we have to be very careful about saying to people, there's more information than ever. You can find valid, accurate information. 
you need to be a little bit wary, but please don't lose trust in everything. Because I think that's ultimately the end goal for those people who are trying to sow disinformation. Oh my gosh, we are walking on a tightrope. And you actually brought up something that uh, is really fascinating. And that is the difference between closed uh, kind of ecosystems where disinformation spreads versus open ecosystems. And so you mentioned WhatsApp, which is, you know, more popular in Brazil and India versus Facebook, which is an open system uh, that's more popular in the United States. Uh, WhatsApp uh, circulates messages in groups of, I think, 256 people maximum. Uh, and and disinformation has been spreading like wildfire uh, through WhatsApp. Uh, and can you kind of break apart the, the differences between how disinformation spreads or even how it, it percolates in, in these two different spaces? Yeah. And this is really pertinent at the moment. I think lots of people have been reading about the problems in India where people have actually lost their lives. Like it's actually leading to murders and yes. people on the street protesting. And and in many ways, you hear people say, yes, because social media like WhatsApp, WhatsApp actually shouldn't be described as a social media platform. You're absolutely right. It's a closed messaging app. And you're right to say that people can be in groups of up to 256. The average size of a group tends to be about six. Mm. So what that means is you have people in very many of these small groups. So we are used to thinking of a in a broadcast uh, way. So whether it's radio or whether it's Twitter, we think about, well, there's one message and with social media, it can go everywhere or radio allows it to go everywhere. With WhatsApp, we don't have that same mechanism, but it's jumping very, very quickly between trusted peers. So on Twitter, you might say, well, that guy's an idiot. I don't trust him. <laughs> In WhatsApp, you're more likely to be in a group with your best friends or family or co-workers, which means, again, going back to that conversation about our brains, our brains are looking for those heuristics. So actually, if you get forwarded a piece of information from your best friend, your brain's like, don't really need to check that out because Martha's always right. So the problem we have with WhatsApp is we need to understand kind of networked environments. So in the same way as when everybody talks about Obama in 2008, he understood that. So he had millions of people individually having parties in their house and fundraising individually. He understood that power. When we think about WhatsApp, if we're trying to slow down misinformation on WhatsApp, you can't just send out one message that will hit everybody. You need to have ambassadors in every one of those millions of groups saying, PS, I've just debunked this. So that is a huge challenge. And, you know, within the journalism and communication space, we've never had anything like that. We're kind of back to the era of people in their living rooms and their, I'm British, in their pubs, you know, having conversations within small groups. That's the challenge with WhatsApp. It's a very different beast to the social platforms we've had before. Right, and this information kind of gets seeded on WhatsApp then, right? So, so you know, there might be a piece of disinformation that somebody receives and then they, they just spread it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, for example, in India, you know, there's one particular political party that really understands WhatsApp and they have, you know, 1500 operatives starting lots of small Facebook groups and then even more are started. And so they understand that networked environment. They understand that they need to create these small groups with tight people because they are trusted nodes. And that's why I say we need to kind of understand a network society because it's it's it basically mirrors society much more closely than a Facebook or Twitter. We don't normally stand with a megaphone and talk to thousands of people like we can with Twitter. WhatsApp is like our own little rumor mills. Because that's the other thing to remember. As humans, we can't really stop this because we've always loved gossip. We've always loved rumors. Because if somebody tells me right now that a best friend is having an affair, am I going to verify it? 
probably not. I'm going to pick up the phone and talk to somebody else about it. So when we have those issues with WhatsApp, that's what's happening. It's taking advantage that as humans, we connect with other humans through information at an emotional level, not necessarily a rational level. And that in a place like India, where people are actually, they've come to the internet much more recently. They haven't necessarily understood how you need to check information, how everything you see online isn't true. But at the same time, remember, a lot of the times they're getting information from trusted friends, which means their brains are much likely to say, oh, okay, I'm not even going to check. Yeah, to me, that's that's a fascinating point. And, and for one thing, it's a good reminder that misinformation is not a, just a newfangled phenomenon, right? I mean, it's, it's technology is enabling it and, and algorithms that make stuff go viral are maybe making it worse. But we've probably always had misinformation in human, you know, just human networks, word of mouth networks. Um, and, and Twitter, you know, it feels toxic or scary sometimes because strangers can yell at you. But you're highlighting that there's a downside to a, a site where strangers can't yell at you and tell you that you're wrong or correct your information easily. Um, but I wanted to ask you about the standards that the different social media platforms are using to determine what content is allowed on their platform and what isn't. I mean, historically, platforms like Facebook and Twitter said, look, it's not our job to decide what people can say. Uh, we just are, are connecting people and they'll say whatever they want to say. Now they're accepting more responsibilities, but they're trying to make these distinctions because they don't, you know, obviously they don't want to be in the business of regulating everything everyone says. So you get stuff like Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook saying that he doesn't take down posts that are denying the Holocaust because maybe you know the, he can't discern the intent. Maybe the people really believe that, and so they shouldn't they shouldn't be banned just for saying things that are wrong because we all get stuff wrong. Um, you also hear a standard. Facebook has a new policy where if there's misinformation that could lead to physical violence in the real world, then they'll take that down, but they won't take down other types of misinformation necessarily. Uh, what do you? Where do you land on on what's what are the right standards and and how are the platforms doing in terms of finding the line between speech that they should allow and speech they should not allow? It's a great question. And again, I love to think about how historians will think about this era, because from the moment the platform started, they recognized that if they had to take responsibility for the content that was on their platforms, they were going to be in trouble because they were going to have to hire thousands and thousands and thousands of moderators to make really difficult decisions. Because anybody who works in the publishing business, talk to any journalist, they'll tell you these decisions are really, really hard. So what they've tried to say is we are not a publisher. We are simply a communications platform. And now what you see is this kind of frustrating wrangle where people go, Zuckerberg, just admit that you're actually an, a publisher. And he's like, no, we're just a communications platform. And it goes round and round and round. The truth is they are a hybrid we have never had anything like a Twitter or a Facebook before or a YouTube. And so what the problem is, we haven't caught up in terms of regulation or legal frameworks. So we're in this tussle. And so what we're seeing is that evolution. So at the very beginning, they wanted to make absolutely no editorial judgments whatsoever. And I think one of the first cases where they took down content had been a beheading, I think, in Syria. And actually, they were Facebook said, okay, we will take this down, or Twitter did. And that was almost the first stage. And then they started saying, okay, we're going to take down pornography and extremist content, because that's actually illegal speech. And so when we had speech that people agreed was illegal, they, they could stand behind that, because they said there's a legal framework. What they hate is this middle ground, this gray area. And they've been trying to hold back and say, we don't want to have to make decisions. The minute they said this week or last week, when they said, in Sri Lanka, we're going to have this pilot to say anything that may lead to 
violence, we will take down. Now, this is a huge step, and I actually think a step that they need to take, and it's come about because of pressure, because we've seen violence in places like Sri Lanka and India, and they're under huge pressure, both from regulators and civil society, to do something. But I think that just shows a natural progression that they're going to have to own up to the fact that they are publishers, and they're going to have to actually hire a lot of moderators. And I think even this time last year, there was a lot of discussions about Facebook Live, and we were seeing people committing suicide. We were seeing drive-by shooting. It was awful. And it was like, you can't possibly let this happen on your platform, Facebook. And Mark Zuckerberg said, we're going to hire 10,000 moderators. We're going to put AI on this to help us, you know, alert us to the signals. And lo and behold, I mean, it is happening, but to a much, much lower level. The truth is, they, I think, just going to have to hire incredibly high numbers of moderators across the world who speak local languages, have local context. Uh, and I think that's just what they're going to have to accept. And if they don't, we will see very, I think, oppressive regulation, which they don't want either. So I think they're just going to have to throw a lot of money at this problem. That might affect their massive profit margins. But... It's so massive. I think that they can be I think a bit, they might a bit be of a big dent, dent. Yeah. Uh, Claire yeah. Wardle, thanks so much for joining us. It was great to have you. Thanks very much for having me. All right. One last break and then don't close my tabs. Some of the best things we saw on the web this week. mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. All right, it's time again for Don't Close My Tabs. April, what tab could you not close this week? So I read this really fascinating story uh, in The Atlantic a day ago or two days ago, I don't know, time is folding, (laughs) called Artificial Intelligence Shows Why Atheism is Unpopular. And it uh, is a story uh, about uh, whether or not uh, you can code theories of religion into a computer model to find out, for instance, why there aren't more atheists, right? Um, And this is just, it's a really well-written story. I I recommend people reading it because it gets into all of these kinds of murky questions about, like, whether or not there's a risk to this type of, you know, social engineering. Is it unethical? Um, You know, how can we use, you know, computer programs to predict, like, deeply difficult to to quantify things? Uh, Very well-done piece, One part that really stood out to me that I just want to read, people tend to secularize when four factors are present, existential security, whether or not you have enough money and food, personal freedom, uh, when you're free to choose whether 
uh, to believe something or not, pluralism, when you have a welcoming attitude towards diversity of belief and education. So this story kind of like really tugged at my heartstrings as a philosophy major because it went into all of these ways we can think about the world and what we believe in with the world, but then applied that to whether or not machines can understand it. So uh, yeah, recommend that piece. Wait, so if we want if we want computers to be atheists, we need to give them existential security, personal freedom, pluralism, and education. <laughs> I guess so. This is what this is what uh, leads people to to secularize. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just it's also a question of not whether or not you can break down atheism into a formula, right? Whether you can break down propensity to believe in religion and, and also what is belief or not, right? So participating in, in capitalism is a leap of faith. It's believing that money has value and then going with that. You know, I think uh, it's hard to know what is and isn't a religion. And anyway, this piece is, is well done. It gets into a lot of these questions. And, and again, whether or not we can cram that into a computer. So I, I love that tab. Right up your alley, I Will. love that tab. And I shudder <laughs> to think of what God, the the artificial intelligence of the future will believe in. I know. Is he gonna? Is is does does the god of the future have a bunch of computers in front is of it him? Elon or Musk? That's a terrible thing to say. I don't know. I don't want to. I don't want to say god of the future, but but it does raise questions into power uh, and and how much power these these computer programs can have to determine things about ourselves. Will tab me? What's your tab? All right, my tab this week is a video that was posted by the network CRTV. This is from Conservative Review. It's a it's a, a right-wing outlet. And they posted a video that took clips from Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, she being the Democratic congressional candidate who scored a huge upset primary win uh, and is now the favorite to, to join Congress. Um, she's a, a favorite of liberals. She describes herself as a socialist. And so, of course, uh, so, uh, conservatives are eager to use her as a polarizing force. In this video, they took real answers by Ocasio-Cortez, but spliced in different questions. So, it makes it sound like she's saying completely outlandish and, and horrible things. Uh, the publication that put it up there defended it as satire. And I do think, you know, I, April, you may have a thought on this. I, mean, I do think you could probably tell if it, that it's satire if you have any kind of news literacy. But uh, it was it was very widely circulated on Facebook. And I, I have to imagine some of the people watching it thought that she was really saying these things. I know. I mean, so uh, who was it? I think it was a, a journalist from the the New York Times, uh, Shane Goldmacher. I think you, I said that correctly. Uh, he's the one that 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 posted uh, this in a tweet, flagging it as uh, something that is kind of a doctored video or uh, you know something that didn't actually happen. Uh, I watched it and definitely thought that this is obviously satire. But, you know, CRTV certainly wasn't branding it as satire, uh, right? They, they, they tweeted, as, as was grabbed in a screenshot, um, that this correspondent grills congressional hopeful and progressive it girl Ocasio 2018 on her socialist agenda and knowledge of government or lack thereof. So, like, uh, after this New York Times reporter uh, tweeted that, hey, this has got a million views and it's, like, clearly a doctored video, uh, CRTV went in and said, oh, no, this is parody. This is satire. Um, and uh, it's interesting because if it is that, they, they certainly didn't label it when they were originally promoting it. So kind of a big mess. And it shows how difficult it is to know what's real on the Internet these days. Yeah. And our producer, Max Jacobs, is actually telling me we can queue up. We can play for you a quick clip from that video right now. Yeah, I think people should judge for themselves. 
How do you respond to the people who say that socialism has never worked? Capitalism was the most efficient and best economy, perhaps. Abject poverty is at the lowest level it's ever been because of capitalism. Well, I, th I think the numbers that you just talked about is part of the problem. I, I don't understand. Oh, um... So what do you hope to accomplish when you're in Congress? This is a really good question. So what is it? I just think that that's the wrong question. Okay. So why should voters vote for you? You vote. It's, it's democratic. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So right. I think it's interesting because when you see it as a video, you're definitely like, at least I was like, this is satire. But when I hear it uh, kind of extracted, just the audio, I, I could see how one could be confused. Yeah. And I think we're in a time when people are really ready to believe the absolute worst about their political opponents. Um, and, and I think this plays to that. Right. Uh, that is a very interesting tab and debate this week that we will continue to have. And that wraps it for our show. You can get updates about what's coming up next by following us on Twitter at IfThenPod. You can also email us at ifthen at slate.com. We've been getting your emails. Keep sending us your tech questions, show and guest suggestions. And we swear that one of these days, very soon, we will get to an episode where we uh, go through some of these questions and uh, answer them to the best of our abilities, or maybe even bring in an expert to help us answer one or two of them if we can. Seriously, we've all just been traveling and the news has just been moving under our feet, but we're going to get to them. Keep sending them. We love hearing from y'all. You can follow me and Will on Twitter as well. I'm at April Laser and Will is at Will Oremus. Thanks again to Dr. Claire Wardle. You can follow her on Twitter at CWard1E. And thanks to everyone who's left us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen. We really appreciate your time listening to us and especially your time hitting that five-star button on the review uh, and, and putting a, a, a nice note about the show on there. Uh, thanks for everyone that's done that. And if you haven't, please do so. If Then is a production of Slate and Future Tense, a partnership between Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. Our producer is Max Jacobs. Thanks to Jesse Nichols at Fantasy Studios in Berkeley, and thanks for the burrito. Thanks to Don Aulis at A Room with a VU in Santa Barbara. We're going to see y'all next week. <laughs>